folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, the podcast where every week we look at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher, and with me this week is Grant McCarran. How are you, Grant? Hey, not too bad, mate. How are you doing? Uh, survived another week, doing well. And with us from lovely South Australia once again this week is Baz Sheffers. How are you, Baz? I'm pretty good myself as well. Thank you. And welcome back. Yeah, Baz, didn't you learn the first time? You've come back. Yeah, you are no. a massacre. Actually, I think we kept him on hold for a week. Oh, right. Sorry. Remember to end the call when we finish this week, would you, mate? Okay, sorry. My bad. This week we've got some news on Jetstar. We've got some news on Qantas, as always. Even Air New Zealand, and even a regional avi- or a recreational aviation story to cover this week. Yeah. Let's uh, jump right into it. What do you say? Let's go. Our first story this week we found in ABC News. Well, in fact, it, it made a lot of news in a lot of outlets this week, and uh, regards a Jetstar flight attendant contacting a 15-year-old passenger on Facebook after she was a passenger on a flight. Naughty, naughty. Yeah, they reckon the uh, attendant he used the uh, manifest and or the uh, her boarding pass to confirm her name and then looked her up on Facebook to make contact. I wonder if he didn't realise she was 15. Yeah, the, uh, it says here that uh, the mother obviously made the complaint and she was travelling on the flight with uh, actually her two daughters, a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old, going from the Sunshine Coast down here to Melbourne. Uh, they'd been dealing with a male flight attendant during the flight and uh, they swear up and down they didn't give the flight attendant their names. So uh, one wonders how exactly he got that information. Mm, yeah, it is interesting. Either way, it, it doesn't really matter how he got it the fact is he shouldn't have had it and uh, he, he he would think um, your average uh, person would show a little bit more intelligence when they're, when they're dealing with uh, things like this yeah it is kind of uh, obvious well maybe he was going to try and say well they gave me the name you know and it becomes an us versus them scenario yeah you got to wonder how uh, often this happens I actually did this uh, a while ago in the office I, I, we were having a discussion about this and uh, I'd just been to the pharmacy and you know on the receipt this actually says the name of the pharmacist so I said well let's go and find out so you know type in the name and yep they're on facebook it's uh with lots of details about themselves so it's uh you got to be careful and, and definitely turn on the option where uh, you hide your private information from people who are not your friend and not just uh, when someone wants to be your friend actually only allow people that are actually your friend it is it is a common safe way of approaching it uh, some people also have two profiles they have their a official squeaky clean one that uh, work gets to see and various other people and then they have their real one that only their true friends get to see oh, i have this other rule colleagues unless i'm actually socialized with them on other occasion i also see them as my friends i tend to just not add and ignore their requests uh, that's that's what we've got linkedin for, link yeah linkedin is good for that exactly yeah that's what I use LinkedIn for. That's for colleagues and people I work with, and Facebook is for uh, friends. It's certainly a lesson, uh, you know, that that's, you often hear from the police towards parents, and it, it certainly reinforces here the idea that if you're going to let your kids engage in social networking like that, then the, you really have to play an active role as a parent in, in monitoring what your kids are doing. Uh, who knows what the intentions of this flight attendant were? He, he may not have thought he was doing anything wrong, although one wonders how, how he would have thought that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one, that one. But it's like when you let your kids cross the road you don't just let them cross the road you teach them road safety well it's the same with the net you don't need to nanny them you don't have to block them you don't have to prevent the rest of the world from being able to do stuff just teach your kids on how to deal with it correctly says here that the mother uh, made a complaint to jetstar and they initially told her that she ought to put her concerns in writing and said it would take up to three weeks to respond to her claims uh, it seems to have taken significantly less than that because the uh, gentleman in question was uh, supposed to return to work on the 8th but uh, was stood down and uh, called into a uh, senior management meeting yeah, it's nice to see how a little bit of uh, wider media um, exposure would um, rather focus jetstar's attention a little more sharply yeah well airlines and other companies are coming to grips with the fact that that they've got to react a lot quicker now. There's, uh, you know, they, you can't bury things under the rug anymore because thanks to, oh, social networking, people are able to uh, discover things a lot quicker. And speaking of mile-high matchmaking and uh, getting things together on a social level at altitude, there's actually a small startup company out of Perth that's uh, hoping to put an end to the loneliness of the long-distance flyer. This is an article in The Australian from Steve Creedy. Sorry, it had to be one. Checkmein.com.au it launched last week and it lets business travellers who want to network with potential contacts put in their information and uh, say what flight they're on and then Checkmein will actually not only just do the check-in as soon as it's available – but uh, it also tries to link them up with people and make sure they're sitting next to people who could be of benefit. Benefit in what way, one wonders? Well, I don't know if this is going to be like they're talking about it using business travel as networking, but uh, you could imagine it being a uh, social matchmaking from hell kind of scenario. <laughs> You'd really want to make sure that the right people were in charge of that booking service or it really could be disastrous, I reckon. 
Yeah, well, suddenly it's uh, it's that brings up the whole thing of uh, keeping your demographic secret, doesn't it? <laughs> you know what I'm wondering is, do they actually tell you that you that they've seated you next to someone interesting, or do they just seat you there and don't tell who they've seated you next to? So it's not quite as awkward, and you just happen to sit next to someone who's turns out to be quite interesting. Yeah, or it could also be shot to heck by the. Uh people who rearrange everyone on the plane at the last minute as steve discovered on his way back from the u.s ah uh, yes yeah, and i didn't even notice there was like check me in for that disaster to happen <laughs> I, I can't even find one seat i like and when i check in online and then trying to find two seats that two people like yeah well, that's that's why the system um it, they've got a, a computer system that uh, does the checking in as soon as an airline allows it so they know that the airline opens up 24 hours so bang right on the dot their computer system is in there and shuffling yes well very interesting concept, one that I will probably just leave right alone. Yeah, just imagine that you're there. Oh, I get to relax on a one-hour flight. I can just kick back. I can read. And, oh, God, I'm sitting next to a salesman who's trying to push a deal on me. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if I was going on some sort of business trip, I probably would use the flight as a time to switch off and relax. I reckon the last thing I'd want to be doing is sitting next to someone else talking about business. Well, I can uh, tell you a fun little story from a uh, – a friend, they tell the story of one of their sort of legal sales kind of reps was traveling to close a deal and they were ready to sign on the dotted line and close the deal. But they happened to be sitting right next to someone who, as soon as the plane took off, they whipped out all their gear and started working. And they were crunching all these figures and numbers for a uh, pending sale. And the guy realized that it was actually for the sale he was tra- flying off to uh, close off. And he got to see all the dirty laundry and information. And uh, when they when he arrived in the room for the meeting, the guy was there with a very white look on his face because the uh, person traveling said, well, I was going to say you've got the deal, but I happen to be able to sit next to this gentleman here and saw all the information. And uh, we're going to walk away from this one. Thanks, guys. See you later. Yeah, you can imagine him having a, a big cheesy room with the ding sparkle coming of it <laughs> as he turned around yeah. to that bloke. Hi there. <laughs> yeah, do you remember me from the flight? Yeah. <laughs> Are you McLean showing? We should probably leave the area of uh, social networking there for this week and uh, move on to some airline news. What do you reckon we could talk about uh, Jetstar and their eyeing uh, off growth markets in Asia and India as incomes in China and India increase and governments open up more routes to overseas carriers? Um, I wonder if uh, perhaps also he would uh, be looking at that in response to a certain other Australian-based airline looking at the same markets of recent times. Was V Australia looking at uh, China and India? I know they were looking at South Africa and uh, Thailand, as well as, of course, Fiji and uh, various other ports around around Asia-Pacific area. But were they? is this Jetstar actually jumping ahead and trying to say, ha-ha, we'll look here first? I think Jetstar did seem to get a little taken by surprise by V Australia suddenly opening all these markets and applying to Fiji. I think probably a question that would uh, that immediately springs to my mind is: Doesn't already Qantas mainline fly there? Is there really a need for Jetstar to fly there? And, and uh, further to that, what ramifications would that have for Qantas mainline if Jetstar suddenly started flying into those markets instead? What, as in oh, the way that Qantas is disappearing all around the place anyhow, because Jetstar is slowly taking over more and more? Yeah, risk. I mean the, we we discussed that last week or the week before. I think we um, you know we were making comments on how Qantas mainline is slowly, ever so slowly, seeming to be eaten away by Jetstar. Yeah, Jetstar of Borg. (laughs) Isn't that uh, part of the design where people uh, are commenting that this is how Qantas would really like to run their entire operation? Remember, it's it's a wholly owned by Qantas, so Qantas really doesn't have all that much to lose if they can move as many people to Jetstar as possible, and uh, you know where the unions and the and the pay uh, unions unions aren't as powerful, and the pay isn't as good, and they you know they save money that way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was the goal of Jeff Dixon, in my opinion, was always to um, really try and run Qantas the way Jetstar is being run, ideally for him. And um, I guess when that didn't work off, the the logical choice for them was to spin off another airline and uh, set that up completely differently right from the start. Well, that that's because Jetstar managed. To, they took over Impulse, so they took over Impulse's AOC, uh, their Air Operators Certificate, and they also took over Impulse's uh, union agreements. So as long as Impulse became Jetstar and everyone was working for Jetstar that way, they kept the Impulse agreements and everyone had to bargain from that level onwards. So by expand, there was nothing in there that didn't say they couldn't expand uh, Impulse, aka Jetstar. So what they've done is they've taken over Qantas with, with Jetstar, and where Qantas is very heavily unionized and has some 
some amazing pay rates and awards and so on for pilots, you know, tech crew, cabin crew, ground crew, etc. The ex-Impulse AOC and union agreements uh, didn't. So they were able to leverage them to the max. And of course, from a commercial point of view, it, uh, it makes sense in a way that uh, for the same reason that uh, a brand like uh, Canon has uh, about uh, 50 different uh, compact cameras that have virtually nothing between them but you know if you're going to pick a camera out of the huge amount on the shelf uh, the more that are from your brand you know, the more likely they're to buy from you and it's the same here you got the choice of uh, if they didn't have Jetstar you had the choice of Virgin Blue Tiger Now and Qantas well there's a 1 in 3 chance they're going to buy from you if you got two airlines there's a 2 in 4 chance they're going to buy from you yeah, yep. yeah it does It does increase the odds doesn't it uh, but it also lets them tailor they, uh, they can keep the Qantas brand for the top end business traveller and uh, the people who want all the perks although as we discovered in a previous episode with the report on uh, on um, approval ratings and so on and people's ac- acceptance of their various airlines there was only about a three or four percent difference between Jetstar and Qantas so you've got a full service premium brand that's not really being appreciated yeah that doesn't surprise me at all because every time I fly Qantas they uh, manage to infuriate me one way or another <laughs> you know, I think brand or customer satisfaction is one thing, but in the end, everybody has their price and, you know, they're always going to be able to fill those cheap seats because they are cheap. Bruce Buchanan, the chief executive of Jetstar, says this year that he's expecting Jetstar revenue uh, would rise to $2.6 billion, so that's up from $2.3 billion in the last financial year. So obviously they're doing something right and getting those cheap seats filled, it's obviously making money for them. And if they're going to be heading off into areas of the world, you know, such as the subcontinent and, you know, into Asia, that sort of region where uh, incomes are lower, then low-cost airlines are, are probably going to be pretty attractive to those sort of markets, I think. That's one of the reasons why uh, Qantas are investing another $10 million into Jetstar Pacific, which is the Vietnamese airline. You know, they're, they're trying to expand that and get their territory going. Yeah, look, it's... Low cost is the way. It's it's what's happening. It's interesting that uh, some examinations are finding that uh, low cost can actually be more expensive than the full full featured airlines. Uh, once you add in all the extra costs and for bags and check in and and you know do you want your drinks and your food and all that kind of stuff, you can actually wind up paying more. Oh, absolutely. You need to uh, carefully shop around, especially uh, you know coming from the London market. Uh, it's just ridiculous the amounts that uh, you might end up paying for what's supposed to be low cost flights and. Then you go to BA and it turns out that you're actually paying less for a better service. Yeah, well, the whole Ryanair model of uh, we charge you for everything. Yeah, and uh, and also uh, the way the pricing there always worked was the closer you get to the date of travel, the higher the price is, whereas uh, BA would balance it based on the load. So uh, if they still had a lot of seats available, say, a month before you wanted to fly, there'd probably also be uh, lower price seats available because they want to fill them. And you know, the pricing engines for the low-cost airline seem to think it's a weekend it's only a month away we're gonna shaft you <laughs> and you'd, yep. you'd be looking at you know a return to amsterdam uh from london gatwick which is a you know very convenient airport for us for on ba maybe for 65 pounds uh maybe 100 pounds at the most where at the same time uh, you know short time before booking uh, easyjet would be charging double and at other times sometimes i know that i was gonna want to be back uh, at a certain date and knew this you know six months in advance and i would get a 50 pound deal on uh, uh, on one of the local carriers usually uh, easyjet and uh, they're a fine carrier i mean for what is essentially a 45 minute flight uh, and they have many flights a day so you don't have the problem that if you your plane becomes unserviceable you're stuck for a week it, it was absolutely fine so you just you shop around and get the best deal yeah it is it is horses for courses and the, the only difficulty with shopping around is uh doing an apples to apples comparison uh when you do a, a fair comparison and then you find out oh now you got to pay for those bags and as a couple from new zealand discovered it cost almost as much to ship their bags around when they flew from uh, new zealand to australia and back again those bag fees can add up that was Jetstar charging per bag per leg. And you're playing, paying for your coffee and tea and snacks and everything once you're on the plane too. So there's, you know, there's, there's yeah. that to consider as well, I guess. Yeah, you do you do need to. It's very hard to get that apples for apples comparison, but uh, that's the way it is. Okay, so while we're looking at the world of uh, Qantas and Jetstar, we might move on to another interesting article we found dealing with Qantas this week and appeared in the Australian newspaper on the 9th of October. And Qantas is installing new software on its A330 aircraft aimed at avoiding the circumstances that sent one of its planes on a wild cross-country ride across West Australian skies a year ago. That incident, as we uh, probably reported at the time, over on the Australia desk, injured 12 people. That's right, that was the famous roller coaster off Learmouth. Yeah, it says here the software developed in conjunction with Airbus has already 
already been installed on 12 of the airline's 22 A330 aircraft and uh, will be on the rest by the end of next month. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, we haven't really heard much. Of, after they had that incident, we haven't really heard too much about it ever since. It all sort of went uh, rather quiet about that, and I guess it was perhaps a little bit overshadowed by the Air France slide. There was a little bit of talk there about uh, whether those those two incidents might have been caused by the same sort of uh, component failure. Although I did hear recently that um, they've given up the uh, search for the black box uh, recorders on that Air France flight, so we may well never know. I don't know that they're actually fully giving up, but they're ta- they've ter- certainly scaled it down. And I think there is a group just still looking into a few leads, but on the whole, it's not a it's not going to not expected to happen. I don't think they're going to find them. But this uh, this software data update. Um, it's it's the flight management software, so it's pretty cool stuff. What's happened is that uh, Qantas have changed the maintenance procedures to ensure ADIRU faults, the air data initial reference units, uh, faults are quickly isolated and corrected. And the airlines actually worked with Airbus to develop the improved flight control software so they can better manage events such as the uh, incident that plagued flight QF72 with uh, that little roller coaster ride yep. going up and down. So uh, they've upgraded the level of detail routinely captured um, in the system to help get a better better reading and uh, f- isolate these problems faster. Did we ever hear an ATSB report about that? I, I can't remember actually reading one now I think about it. Uh, we got some interim ones, but I haven't seen a final one, I don't think. The saying here, well, and, and obviously you would expect them to do this, that uh, Qantas had changed its maintenance procedures uh, regarding these ADIOUs. Uh, and it says uh, faults on them are now quickly isolated and corrected. Well, you know, one would yeah. hope so. Yeah. A uh, spokesman for the Qantas Pilots Union has endorsed the action taken by Airbus and Qantas and is quoted here as saying that uh, we've got faith in the aircraft, mm. the amount of operations it does worldwide, and because they have multiple redundancies. So there you go. Uh, that's yep. actually a quote by Richard Woodward. I like. I love the last line in this. Uh, uh, also considered unlikely is a theory that the problems were caused by transmissions from the Harold E. Holt Communications base near Exmouth. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, near Exmouth in Western Australia, which is uh, to the north of Perth, there's a very low frequency signals base used for communications uh, with submarines and so on and uh, various other, other operations. And uh, the fact that there were two similar incidents that occurred, the, the the first one and a subsequent one did have people wondering if uh, the this comms from this uh, base were causing problems or maybe the more obvious uh, explanation is that one of the pilots was using their mobile phone to call their wives what time they'd be home that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah from that altitude they're probably in range of a tower <laughs> all right and while we're talking about Qantas guys let's slide on over into another rather touchy subject for Qantas oh this one's pretty soft as well you mean the one where uh, Qantas, uh, who's being criticised for offshoring their maintenance, is now being criticised for importing their butter? Yeah, and they've got their responses down pat, I tell you. Oh, dear. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Listeners uh, should note that uh, these two guys on the other end of the Skype link here had a, a myriad of lines they were going to use, and they haven't hardly used any of them. Well, we haven't well, told the story yet. <laughs> Well, let me just read it here. This appeared on the ABC News. Qantas is under fire from the federal opposition for serving imported butter on its Australian flights. It says, while Australian dairy farmers are receiving low prices for their milk because of a global downturn in demand for dairy products, uh, Qantas is uh, helping them out really well by in, in choosing to import butter from Denmark. I think that's a bit rich. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm sure the critters will be milking this for a long time. Oh, yeah, we're churning it up, that's for sure. Oh, what? You didn't want to skim the cream off that one? Oh, uh, yeah, I was trying to think of one. I was trying to think of one. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the whole story is just utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Ouch. We make jokes about this, but it's really quite serious. And how much money would it really be saving them by importing Danish butter? And did I read somewhere that a grant that they're still using Australian butter in their Qantas lounges? Yeah, that's correct. And they're saying that the decision to use the decision to use Danish butter was to, uh, made in order to help ensure that they didn't have to uh, retrench so many workers. Not sure how that one works out. And how they work it. So uh, there you go, folks. If you uh, you know you really want to have good old Aussie butter on your Qantas flight, you know, just uh, grab a handful of. Uh, butter packets from the Qantas lounge before you board the flight. Well, assuming you're one of these lucky people who's allowed to be in the Qantas lounge, I mean, you know, I personally have to uh, hang out downstairs with the rest of the hobnobby types, uh, whereas uh, obviously Steve must be one of these lucky types who gets to um, fight his way to the front of the queue to get his free croissant in the morning. Yeah, no, I'm just a humble train driver, mate. The working poor, the working poor. (laughs) Here at the Qantas Club, we're almost everyone's a member, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. 
Yeah, nice to see that Air New Zealand has uh, joined the rest of the airline crowds and they're also reporting that uh, demand may be recovering and that they're not likely to have to do any further capacity cuts, which is pretty good. Yeah, we've got a report here that we picked up off Reuters. Air New Zealand uh, claiming that they have seen an increase in demand and uh, passenger yields will recover by the end of 2010, its CEO said on Tuesday. The airline sees no capacity cuts on the horizon, says Rob Fife. And uh, Air New Zealand said in late August that there were signs that demand for travel was stabilising, but the environment remained turbulent as it reported a 90%. I'll just repeat that, 90% fall in profit. So uh, I guess if you were addressing your shareholders, you'd certainly want to be finding a way to make things sound upbeat with a big drop in profit like that. Spin it, baby, spin Mm. it. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I do hear a lot of politicians talking about this now, really sort of talking up. You wonder whether things are starting to improve. I mean, are things starting to improve? Were they ever really that bad uh, to start with? Um, Or is it really just a a little bit of uh, wishful thinking and hoping that if uh, we say things are improving for long enough, then um, maybe it will? All the airlines are reporting that things are either levelling out, that you're getting reports of uh, it's levelling out, or the rate of descent is easing off. It's still going down, but the rate isn't increasing, which is one heck of a way of spinning it. Uh, Or you're getting actual reports of of increases in, in number of people flying, but... As uh, Dan was pointing out the last time he was on with us, uh, you may have more people flying, but if you're uh, not charging much for it and barely making enough on it, then more people flying doesn't mean a recovery. It just means more people are jumping over these uh, massively discounted airfares. In New Zealand, you know, they're doing a few things that that would seem to me, and I think I said this in previous episodes too, that it seems to be a little bit of innovative thinking on their part lately with all their their, their, um, different, shall we say, advertising campaigns and and, and trying to make things upbeat and and, and sort of really sticking themselves in in the public conscience when they're thinking about airlines. You know, here's a hip and happening airline and, you know. They're definitely uh, going for that cool look. Yeah, they're, they're certainly... At least they're making an effort to, in my opinion, change their image a little bit and and, and get out there and market themselves in a positive manner. So, you know, they're trying to keep that sort of positive attitude going around the airline and keep everybody upbeat and, you know, things will get better. I'm sure they will anyway. Good on them. I hope hope that things do improve for them because uh, with a a profit fall like that, things really do need to go up and uh, probably pretty quick, one would think. Yeah, but at least the the profit fall may have been down by 90%, but at least it wasn't uh, by more than 100%. Yeah, well, that's true. Okay, so uh, we'll move away from the airlines just for now and um, move across into the world of uh, recreational aviation just briefly. And there's uh, been a couple of uh, fatal plane crashes over in the West this week, Baz. Yeah, that's true. Although only one of those was a, a recreational aircraft. Uh, in uh, Western Australia this week, uh, first an agricultural plane doing crop dusting crashed. Uh, and later the same day, uh, a recreational aircraft, an ultralight, came down as well in a paddock. Uh, unfortunately, both of them fatal. Um, it's going to take a while until they figure out why. Of course, the ATSB is uh, investigating the uh, crop duster and Recreational Aviation Australia will be investigating the recreational crash. Uh, Usually these take a a long time, but uh, some reports have come out that uh, the recreational aircraft probably struck wires uh, came down in the paddock and unfortunately caught fire on impact. Um, So what probably could have been a reasonably survivable accident, uh, probably wasn't because of the fire. Yeah, it's amazing the, the number of, um, in general aviation and recreational aviation, the stats which show that uh, the people possibly survived the impact but uh, couldn't get out in time before the fire. Mm, mm. Yeah, lots of, uh, of course, we're general aviation still using a lot of highly flammable fuel rather than uh, the uh, or the jet fuel, which is nearly as flammable. Yeah. That probably has something to do with it, and uh, yeah, it's it's very unfortunate. It's uh, it's still uh, it always gets a lot of press when something like this happened. But the uh, the safety of uh, especially recreational aviation in the past few years has uh, has gone up uh, dramatically. I think I think this is our second fatality this year, uh, and if you uh, with you know the growth in recreational aviation the actual fatalities are uh, are way down so you know we're on a on a good path yeah. and uh, it's still it's still looking at statistics uh, a pretty safe thing to do but uh, every once in a while something like this happens and it shakes everyone up yeah no there was a there was a spate i, re- I remember earlier in the year there was a spate of accidents and there was an article in uh, in the press about uh, Oh, you know, there's been all these accidents and RAOs and all this kind of stuff. And it wasn't outright stated, but I do remember 
getting a little upset about the implication of the article being that R.A. Oz was, uh, you know, cowboy and not safe. If we're uh, talking about the same article, if what's well, article? If you're talking about the article that I'm thinking about, it was a yeah, it was a real hit piece that yep. uh, meant to make it into a lot of the a lot of the press, and it was just completely full of factual errors because you know apparently we're all buying aircraft for about 2,500 bucks, and uh, yeah. uh, we were the, the motorcycles of the sky, and then this author uh, decided to rattle off some uh, some fatal accidents. And then when you looked at them, none of them were actually recreational aircraft. There were Correct. some GA aircraft, there were some gliders, uh, but none of which were actually uh, managed by uh, RALs. Yeah, no, there were a few few of us who wrote into the um, places that were carrying the article because the version we saw just mentioned uh, three accidents. All three of them were CASA um, GA aircraft. None of them were RALs. And because the uh, author of the article was making a thing about how um, you don't have to be a certified mechanic to work on the aircraft, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's more cowboy than everything. And yeah, and yet the accidents that he was pointing to were, oh, bad luck. They were GA, mate. Yeah, you, know, you were... Tragic you, accidents, but still. Exactly. And also things like you only need uh, 20 hours before you're allowed to fly and run. Well, actually, it's until you're competent yeah. with a minimum of 20 hours. And a lot of people forget that, oh, you can learn to fly in 20 hours. No, most people don't. Right. Unless, you're, uh, unless you're a 16-year-old uh, who uh, can still learn uh, new tricks if you're getting a <laughs> bit older. And let's face it, most recreational pilots are a bit older. It takes a bit longer usually. Yeah, no, indeed. Indeed. What sort of um, what sort of scope is? I mean, RAOs will be investigating this crash. Do they carry the same sort of powers or investigative powers, or you know, what recommendation when they make a recommendation after the uh, incident? What sort of weight does that carry within the uh, recreational sphere? Unfortunately, uh, they don't seem to be making a whole lot of recommendation. And to be honest, they're not all that different from the ATSB because it usually takes a very, very long time for anything to come out. I mean, there's crashes that happened years ago that are you know, still under investigation, both by the ATSB and by uh, Recreational Aviation Australia. And uh, there's a lot of people are complaining about about that, that you know these accidents are happening, they're being investigated, but uh, we're not being told of the hows and whys, especially in the case of fatal uh, accidents. Uh, which is a real shame. But uh, at the end of the day, they, they work under CASA and all what they find goes back to, to CASA who uh, can, of course, make recommendations. And definitely out of excellent investigations, uh, airworthiness directives uh, have, have come out. Because I think it's pretty apparent, two things that I really picked up from our discussion last week about aviation, there's two things that are increasing with recreational aviation. One is the technology is increasing at a, at a rapid rate and the standard of the aircraft is obviously improving at, a, at what appears to be a faster rate than that of uh, general aviation, in the particularly in the lighter general aviation. And also the popularity is increasing, which means there's going to be more of these aircraft in the skies. So therefore there's going to have to be an increasing amount of uh, regulation and um, changes in I guess I guess what I'm getting at here is that RAOs is going to ha- have to take an increasingly more uh, authoritative role. I, I would I would hope they do as long as uh, it doesn't take away from a lot of the freedoms that we now have. But I, I certainly hope as a, as a pilot that uh, RAOs and CASA and if they need the help of the expert at the ATSB, they give them a ring as well and properly uh, investigates these things and comes back with recommendations. And if regulations need to be changed, then uh, then I hope they do. So long as- so long as we don't wind up reinventing CASA within RARs in another five to ten years. Yes, exactly. That, that is a worry. But uh, on, on that note, actually, uh, I remember CASA does quite like the self-regulated uh, people like us and, and the gliders because they de- really don't want to deal with it. So yeah. they, they set limits on uh, what, what we can do, but uh, most of the uh, the actual day-to-day work is, is done by Recreational Aviation Australia. And sometimes concessions are made and people get upset, like uh, the the new rule that's coming in that we you must carry radio uh, at uh, licensed uh, aerodromes, um, basically turning all of them into uh, you know, yeah, radio required, where some of them aren't now. And a lot of people are up in arms over that because we're losing our freedoms. And personally, I think that's a small price to pay for, uh, for keeping our freedom. And personally, uh, why would you go flying without a radio? Yeah, well, I mean, freedoms are one thing, but uh, safety is another, and, and safety surely has to over override, you know, freedoms in in some cases. And you know, we're common sense. It's just common sense to carry a radio with you, for for example. Exactly, uh, doing things like requiring transponders, uh, which has been mulled, um, is just if you're out in the middle of nowhere, it doesn't make any sense because there's no one looking at you anyway. 
and uh, the, all the aircraft that uh, are around you uh, don't have any uh, traffic detection systems either. So uh, those kinds of things don't make a lot of sense. But you know, ra- radios aren't nearly as expensive as some some other things that have been proposed. So yeah, why not have one? Yeah, but we don't forget also, you know, you're you're flying a Technum. Um, no, sorry, a Sportstar. Sportstar. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Don't kill me. Uh, so you're you're flying the Sportstar and and things, which is is you know you're flying a real aircraft, and this is going to get other people upset with them. You're not flying <laughs> you know, a um, a trike. You're not flying a powered parachute. You know, you're flying a powered parachute. Parachute. Where's your space for your radio? You um, you got to carry a battery powered one. And guess what? Uh, a good transceiver. And uh, well, that's a lot of money you could have spent on your uh, engine and on your your parachute and things like that. You know. No, it's true, but I think that uh, basically the air the airfields are talking about that this would be required are the ones that are listed in Ursa, and not too many of those where that kind of flying regularly goes on that really happens because you don't really want to be mixing in the circuit in your uh, <laughs> uh, powered parachute with uh, you know a bunch of Jebrus and sports stars and Technums. Now, you said circuit powered parachute circuit. Wait. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. I mean, yeah, I can understand it when it. Yeah. They, they are coming into marked aerodromes, but I thought you were saying they were making it a um, radio-required aerodrome when on Ursa it currently isn't. Uh, that basically what it uh, what it will come down to. But there's uh, Ursa only lists a couple of hundred aerodromes out of uh, thousands. Yeah, um, true. So there's uh, there's lots of uh, places uh, you can still go if you're doing the kind of flying where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to to carry a radio. Yeah, just the one the one caveat I'll put on this is uh, it's a small freedom. It's a it's a small price to pay to keep your freedom, but uh, watch out because small prices add up. Oh, absolutely. Very very true. Coming up after the break, a rough landing in Wagga for Rex. More news on the KC30 Tinker program and David Vanderhoof's weekly aviation history segment. That's next, right here on Plane Crazy, Down Under. Looking for a studio to record your next project? From recording and song production to music videos, disc duplication and DVD presentation kits designed to get you noticed. Audiovisual Media is more than just a recording studio. It's a complete solution for musicians with recording and music video packages available. Record your next project at Audiovisual Media and score free studio time. To find out how, visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 0407 091. At PCDU, we actively encourage participation from our audience. To leave a comment or suggestion, or for further information on how you can support the podcast, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. And welcome back, folks. What do you reckon about that, Grant? A commercial break, aren't we, Flash? Oh, man, I'm feeling like a real, real radio show now. It's like, I don't know if I've sold out or if I'm really cool. I don't know. I've got a, this warring thing going on inside me again. <laughs> yeah, we really want to uh, put a plug in there for uh, Dominic at Audio Visual Media. He has come around here and uh, spent a lot of his own time when he probably could have been doing other things like um, earning his living. He spent a lot of time around here uh, helping me set my little studio up here. So um, I think that certainly deserves a plug. Yep. And Thanks, just, Dominic. And he just happens to make them, so <laughs> so much easier. There you, go. there you go. He made his own plug. Right, guys. Well, next on the agenda is the weekly history segment from David. Uh, what say we give that a whirl? Sounds great. Let's give it a go. This Week in Aviation History, Australia edition with David Vanderhoof. <laughs> Good day, gentlemen. Greetings from the new crib. I moved approximately three miles. Oops. 5.6 kilometers. For two reasons. One, it's a much newer apartment. The second is I'm now within a quarter mile of Philadelphia International Airport. So you might hear something fly by in the background going forward. Welcome to This Week Down Under in Aviation, Volume 1, Episode 3, October 4th through October 17th. October 4th, 1933. 
Sir Charles Kingsford Smith flies solo from London, England to Darwin, Australia, winning the uh, England to Australia air race. The flight lasted seven days, four hours. The flight was flown in a modified Percival Gull. The Gull was fitted with extra long-range tanks. Evidently, Kingsford Smith is the Australian Charles Lindbergh, with everything but the kitchen sink named after him. Kingsford Smith International Airport in Sydney is named after him. According to Wikipedia, a Qantas A380 Victor Hotel Oscar Queen Foxtrot is to be named after Kingsford Smith. As well as currently, there's a KLM Boeing 747-206 also flying with the name of Kingsford Smith. Next, we'll jump across to the Tasman Sea. October 8th through the 11th, 1953, the Christchurch Centenary Race, the last great air race. The race was run by a RAF Canberra, Whiskey Echo 139. Uh, Whiskey Echo 139 was crewed by Flight Lieutenants R. Burton and D.H. Gannon in 23 hours and 50 minutes, proving that a bomber could fly across the world in less than 24 hours in case of an emergency. The RAAF number one long-range flight came in second. There was a second component to the RH, which was for transport. That was won by a KLM DC-6. Evidently, that, that has been remade into a movie called Bride Flight. So if you guys can get a copy of that, I would love to see it. See, I don't ask for much like money in a suitcase. Well, that does it, guys. I need to go unpack more boxes. Hope you have a good week and hope everything is fine down under. Any comments, questions, or suggestions, please email me at airplanegeekhistorian at gmail.com or check out my blog at whatjustflewby.blogspot.com. Cheers. And thanks very much, David. Another fantastic report there. Uh, Grant, have you heard of that movie, Bride Flight? No, I haven't. I'm just about to go and look it up on uh, Google, I think, because I don't know that one. No, it's not one I'm familiar with. But, uh, yeah, David, we'll have a look it up. It's uh, certainly cheaper for us to buy you a DVD than uh, fill a suitcase full of cash and fly to the States for certain other people in the Airplane Geeks podcast. Hmm, yes, definitely. (laughs) Now... Let's move on to our next story, and we're talking about uh, Rex Airlines. Now, we talked last week at Mackay Airport that uh, our good friends at Tiger Airways had uh, had some trouble starting new flights into Mackay, and uh, Regional Express has also began a thrice-daily service into Mackay using their Saab 340 aircraft. Yeah, that's right. We uh, reported uh, back in uh, Episode 6, back in September, we uh, had found out that Rex was going to start into Queensland, and uh, lo and behold, they have actually done it. Their uh, first flight came into Mackay at the start of October, and uh, they're also going into Townsville. So these new routes are opening up and uh, bringing in some new competition and uh, running some uh, routes that are slightly different to the ones that are already in there. Yeah, it says the route is already, uh, they're talking about the Townsville to Mackay route, and they're saying that that route's already served by Qantas. Uh, they offer 16 weekly departures. What, what aircraft would they be using, Grant? Probably uh, seven- Q400. Oh, Q400s, okay. So, um, yeah, the Dash 8s, it's the Qantas Link. Okay, Qantas Link, of course. So Rex is operating uh, Saab 340s, as we reported. So, uh, yeah, good to see them up there and giving Queensland a go. I don't think it's the first time they've given Queensland a try, but hopefully it's a bit more successful for them this time. Yeah, well, there's already been a reaction, uh, according to the article here in the dailymercury.com.au by Bianca Clare. Uh, this uh, quoted Rex uh, Managing Director Jim Davis is quoted as saying that uh, the competitor's reaction in dropping its fares by around 35% only too clearly illustrates that North Queensland has been missing out and we hope that Rex receives the local support it needs to sustain these benefits to the cities of Townsville and Mackay. Woohoo! Competition, your favourite thing, Steve. There you go. It almost sounds like I know what I'm talking about when I say things like competition. Good for consumers. (laughs) uh, So, but the news wasn't all good for Rex. Uh, They've also had some problems at Wagga down in New South Wales this week. They uh, had an emergency landing, an engine failure, no less. Yeah, not long after they left, uh, one of its engines failed. They reported it, said they were coming back. And fire, ambulance and police crews rushed to the airport expecting an emergency landing and were kind of surprised to find that the airplane landed safely. Imagine that. So... Uh, the by the we don't have too much news on that. Uh, that report that we got there is from the ABC News. Um, it's a very, very brief report, and uh, try as we might, we couldn't find too much other news on it. So uh, obviously it wasn't a huge, huge incident, but uh, yeah, never good to see an engine out. No, but uh, good to see that it was a uh, routine landing. So uh, would be if anyone else out there has any more news, any goss, what went on, feel free to let us know. Playing crazy down under at gmail.com. Well, the next article that we're looking at here is a report in the uh, ABC News about a uh, online poll 
of Americans and Canadians, performed uh, back at the end of July and start of August. And uh, people were asked, uh, what are the worst kind of passengers you can have on a plane? And they rated smelly people, fat people, and people who cough and sneeze. They're apparently the most disliked. Poor hygiene are the worst, while those who cough and sneeze don't like to, uh, people don't like to sit next to them. But an interesting part in here was that uh, 44% of people believe they should be given to, that uh, fat passengers should be given two seats at no extra cost. Mm. To me, that probably indicates that maybe 40 to well, about 40 to 45% of the people who responded to the survey are probably fat themselves. <laughs> Perhaps, maybe. Well, cutting comment there, Grant. Very uh, cutting comment there. I mean, I'm a big guy. Where's yeah. my incentive to lose weight? Uh, I'm trying to lose weight and cut down and. You know, yeah, you got to be pretty big to not fit in an airline seat. I mean, I'm a big guy, and look, a, a, a row full of guys my size—that's probably pushing it a bit. But, geez, if you can't even just you know fit on a seat. I have sat next to a gentleman like that. I was strapping in at the front of the uh, the economy cabin to fly from Sydney to Buenos Aires, and I was getting all you know hopeful because there was an empty seat between myself and the gentleman next to me for a nice long 16-hour flight and uh sure enough a gentleman came and sat in the middle seat and he was overflowing he was spilling across the handles into the seat and um i i, I called up the cabin attendants and i pointed out that i'd seen a whole lot of business class seats vacant up the front and i asked if it was possible to get this gentleman a business class seat because he obviously needed the room and you know what could be done and they said unfortunately Qantas weren't able to do that they couldn't do these upgrades uh but they came back a little while later and you know we did what we could for the guy and they came back a little while later and, and asked if i wanted to move back further down in the plane where there was a seat free i and uh, i was like no problem um this guy's this guy needs all the space he can get i'm happy it's probably going to be better for me down there next to the others and lo and behold i took my gear and they moved me back back pulled me through a galley and said mate you did the right thing, and they put me in business class. I was going to say, you should have been happy to stand up in the aisle, turn around, and walk backwards. <laughs> back. I'll walk backwards up to first class. Not a problem in the world. Well, but yeah, they, they're like the CSM, they call them now, cabin service manager. Uh, he was the one who took me up. He said, don't, you know, make sure the guys don't see you, but come on up. And uh, yeah, he took me up the other aisle, and we went up to uh, business class. And he said, because I, I hadn't caused a stink, and because I'd asked for... Uh, for um, this other gentleman to go, and I was willing to give up my front seat to go to a back seat, and da 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 da. He said, "Oh, I did the right thing, and they put me in business class, so I got 16 hours of business class." Thank you, Qantas. Very nice. I, I once got uh, apologised to profusely by BA for being moved up a cabin. And I'm really not sure so, how that works. Yeah, sorry for making you move, sir. <laughs> Dude, you're moving me up a cabin. Don't apologise. <laughs> I, I'm so terribly sorry, sir, but we have to upgrade your class. Yeah, I was seated at the bulkhead and uh, there was a, a woman with a baby who wanted the bulkhead seat because they can put the uh, the cot there on the fold-down table. And uh, I was initially offered to move to some middle seat and I really wasn't looking forward to that. <laughs> and uh, I said, look, I'm willing to move if you can actually give me something better. <laughs> so they came back and they found me a seat in the uh, Premium economy, which is actually quite nice on BA. Yeah, that and, is nice. Uh, yeah, they apologise profusely for uh, moving me. <laughs> Man, I've got to start flying BA. I wonder... <laughs> Man, this must have been a while ago. <laughs> um, it was a while ago, but you now BA's been pretty good. If you've got, I had a bit of status with them, not all that as much as some. I'm not sure if that actually influenced this decision because they, you know, at the end of the day, they needed the seat. Uh, yeah. The plane was already on the way, but uh, I've, I found them pretty good. I, uh, I like them. Okay, cool. Well, uh, yeah, the uh, to come back to the story, uh, something that's interesting for not being mentioned in here, maybe it wasn't one of the options that people were allowed to tick on, no screaming kids. Although they do mention uh, people who kick the seat in front of them. Uh, Which is what uh, kids do. Yeah, uh, kick the seat, swearing, loud talking, and reclining the seat all the way back. These things are frowned upon. Well, I'm not going to comment on that bringing screaming kids into the plane because uh, <laughs> I once was fortunate enough to bring my nine-month-old twins on the plane with me, which was a BA flight from London to Sydney, in first class. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I have to say it's the best uh, the best way to keep them quiet because there's lots of space for them to sleep in, there's lots of space for them to crawl around in, and so they don't cry. Yeah. So if you're flying with kids, shell out and buy a first-class ticket. Do everyone a favour. And did you know? Did uh, BA apologise to you at that time for perhaps not chartering a Learjet for you or something? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, no, they did apologize for uh, the fact that because our connecting flight was uh, with Qantas, that uh, Qantas hadn't allowed us uh, to to bring on uh, to bring our uh, pram onto the plane. This was on the way out uh, from Sydney to London, and uh, yeah, they were they, they would have uh, they said, well, of course you can bring them on the plane. Where, where is yours? I said, well, Qantas took it away, so they apologized for that. Yeah, well, uh, it was probably an Australian-made uh, pram. What you needed to do was have a Danish-made one that would let it straight on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'll be far now. <laughs> uh, moving right along, take a drink. Yeah. Moving right along, Grant, have another piece of chocolate. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, one king-size block. Gone! We'd like uh, some input this week, folks. We'd like to have a poll uh, about the uh, foodstuffs consumed during recording. I personally think that if Grant is going to eat chocolate, he should supply chocolate for the rest of us. Well, I've smeared some all across the microphone. You didn't get it down your end on the speakers? No, no, no. You should Skype it through or something. Oh, okay. Hang on. I'll take a photo of it. How about that? It depends. What kind of chocolate is it? Who cares? <laughs> uh, well, is it the, the thing is, what I'm, what I'm going for, is it actually chocolate or is it something like Cadbury's? Oh, crikey. I plead the fifth. Ouch. <laughs> I'm leaving that one right alone. Okay, and moving away from the commercial world and moving into the world of defence, a couple of stories here. We're talking about uh, an article we saw on aeronews.net this week, and it's talking about Boeing, and they've received an Australian Industry Award for F-111 support, guys. What, you mean they received an award for doing the work they were contracted to do and were paid handsomely for? That'd be it. Yeah, well, that pretty much wraps up that article. Next. Next. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, well, I should be... These tests quick enough, can you... (laughs) Okay, yes. Well, very good point, Baz. <laughs> well, I think it's probably worth talking about here that, uh, let's see, they've been flying F-111s, it says here, down in Australia since 1968. And it says that uh, for 15 of those years, Boeing Defence Australia, or BDA, has implemented an, and I quote, innovative maintenance and engineering practice for the Royal Australian Air Force's ageing F-111 program to ensure the platform's air superiority. But see, I think Boeing's probably taking um, a, a leaf from their friends and competitors in the US who have been keeping the, oh, I don't know, the buff alive for mm. slightly longer. Uh, let's see, the tweet was kept act- active for ooh, slightly longer. Uh, the KC-135, still going. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the F-111's joining quite a number of other aircraft and being run for much longer than expected. Yeah, and as we've often said, uh, the F-111 won't be running much longer in this country. Sadly, really, it's... uh I know. A wonderful aircraft for its time. Actually came out of the design program that eventually spawned the F-14 Tomcat. I don't know whether you knew that. That's correct, yes. The two, what was happening was that they tried to get one aircraft to meet the needs of the USAF and the USN. And in true, we're all one big happy family mode. They attacked the crap out of each other and came up with wildly differing uh, requirements. Uh, The only commonality was that, oh, look, they had a swing wing. But there is actually footage out there of an F-111, an early model F-111 landing on an aircraft carrier. Scary but true. The other thing I was going to say that's pretty cool about the F-111, a couple of uh, air shows back, Avalon air shows, I actually watched an F-111 do a loop. It was amazing. Typically, the F-111 will do a dump and burn and a few high-speed things and stuff like that. Well, this one was the first time I'd seen them do a uh, four-point roll, you know, various aileron rolls as they were doing their figure eights uh, for their show. And then they actually looped the pig. And it was quite amazing because you'd see an F-16 do a loop and it was nice and tight. Then you'd see an F-18 do a loop. And it was pretty cool, especially when they did the square loop. Then the F-111 did the loop. And you could just about see it at the top of the loop. (laughs) It was way high, way up there. But it was impressive. I I never thought I'd see it. Speaking of the dump and burn, uh, is that uh, one of the requirements that the uh, uh, RAF put into uh, their specific version of the F-35 as well? (laughs) Well, we'll certainly need something to close off all our air shows with. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, but you can just imagine how it's going to be. It'll be like, and here's an F-111 dump and burn. (laughs) Wow, impressive, amazing. And here's an F-35 dump and burn. Yeah, but wait till they do the uh, F-35 dump and burn while it's hovering. Now, that is something I'd pay money to see. Yeah, but we're not getting the C model, guys. We, we, we're getting, but, we're getting the, uh, the normal one. We're not getting the carrier yeah, version. But still, we can, we can imagine it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, if you're going to imagine, imagine good, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Uh, from my time in the uh, F-35 cockpit simulator, uh, uh. I... <laughs> Hello. Not that I got to fly the damn thing. I just was in there with the media crew who were recording other people flying it. Dang it. Uh, I wouldn't have minded a go. But uh, 
the C model and the other two, the A and B, they all have the same cockpit. And where the arrestor hook button is, uh, is also there in the others. It's just it does a different purpose. Interesting, hey. What is the purpose? What is the purpose, yeah. That's what I'm trying to remember. Can we well, there's only one thing for it, Grant. We all need to get back in that simulator. When can you organise that? Oh, mate, next Avalon Air Show, maybe I can twist an arm. Mm. I've got the photos up on my side. I'm just trying to remember what was there. It was the, the yeah, Stovall hook. The F-35B has no landing hook, and the Stovall hook button in the cockpit initiates conversion instead of dropping the hook. That was it. It's the C model as the carrier and has the hook. And in the B model, it presses the you press the button and it uh, goes into short takeoff vertical land mode. Not sure what it does in the A model though, mate. If if the real thing flies anything like what they're simulating, it's going to be bloody impressive. You just say you want to do a 45 degree climb, you just point it at 45 degrees, take your hands off the stick, and it just keeps going. Wow. Yeah. Stuff. It's it's one of these. It's the new new generation look of how how these things work, where the pilot is able to concentrate on flying the mission, not on actually flying the aircraft. They just say, "Go here, go there, go there," and the aircraft pretty much does it for them. Interesting to see. Like you, you're talking about all this technology, how much longer they're actually, are they actually going to require a human sitting in that cockpit? It's the- that that's the kicker. That's the kicker. Will the dogfight of the future be? two guys sitting at desks on the opposite side of the planet when the aircraft gets blown out the other one goes oh bugger game over you know player I one i don't think it will happen too fast for the dogfight because you just don't have the visibility but I, I do think that ground attack aircraft will definitely be the first ones to just go completely pilotless if you're sitting in a uh, wraparound vis simulator or with a virtual reality rig on your eyes so long as you can get through the fact that your eyes and ears are saying you're throwing an aircraft around the sky and your inner ear is saying you're sitting on your bum you know that that generally leads to throwing up pretty quickly but uh, once you get past that then you don't have that vision problem anymore so uh, the f-35's got synthetic vision built in as the as the pilot's looking around he's actually he's able to look through the aircraft and see underneath him behind him through the wing because of the sensor pack on board he's he's got a screen displayed inside his helmet showing him or her i guess uh, what's actually below the aircraft you can look down between your legs and see the ground going by underneath and actually see the the ship you fly over things like that Huh. Yeah, that, that should work pretty well if you've got, uh, indeed, if you've got an AWACS flying over that actually knows where the, the enemy is and they can you know, display where it is and you can maneuver to uh, to take him out if you're, uh, although I, I doubt for a while, but those systems, the, the kind of resolution you would have with your, with your own eyes in picking things up is probably going to be a bit hard, at, uh, uh, but they'll get there in the end. They'll be... Yeah. Uh, we get to some stage where we'll have our, our wars are just all computers fighting each other and uh, no one gets hurt. That would be nice. <laughs> Until the computers go, oh, who are these you know, meat bags? Skynet loot. Skynet. Yes, Skynet. <laughs> you have been targeted for domination. So we started off uh, speaking about the F-111 and uh, keeping their act clean. Well, uh, the Department of Defense has been told to clean up some creek contamination recently. That's right. We uh, we reported an issue or two, an episode or two ago about... Uh, some contamination discovered in a creek out the back of Amberley Air Base uh, that was uh, linked to the uh, F-111 seal de- reseal program where the poor buggers and the defence were working inside fuel tanks and so on, working on the uh, on the F-111s. And uh, all the chemicals and everything were being taken around the back to the incinerator and burnt without too much thought for the environment. Well, uh, they found the contamination and now they're being told, clean it up. Yeah, the Queensland Environment Minister, Kate Jones, says the Defence Force will pay for the clean-up. I'll bet they will. <laughs> yeah, and pay and pay and pay. Well, they've found heavy metals including mercury, cadmium, chromium and nickel. Well, I'm happy the Defence Force will pay for it because we know they've got the commercial arm of the Defence Force which uh, makes all their own money and it doesn't actually cost anyone else anything to do this kind of uh, stuff. No, no, they've, they've got the, the uh, futures market cornered on you know, <laughs> Mickey Mouse Disney cash. yeah. Who else are going to pay for it? It's the taxpayers' money. I guess this might they they might mean because it's a it's a local poly saying that that it's a really it's federal money, not uh, not, not state. state money. This happened up in Queensland, and the mayor of Ipswich, whose name I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, says he's pleased that the action will be taken. He said it's a matter of cleaning up and moving on, but it's important that we can learn a, value, a valuable lesson from this, and that the base should learn a valuable lesson. Yeah, well, yeah, it all comes back in the end. And speaking of things that uh, aren't coming back for a while either are the RAAF tankers because, once again, the KC-30s have been delayed even longer and it's going to be now at least 18 months late. Oh, so mid-2010. Hey, we might actually get an aircraft that can pump gas again. (laughs) 
Yeah, of course, we don't have any tankers at the moment since the uh, 707 has disappeared, so uh, we need to get those things over here and operating, like, really quickly. Yeah, well, that was why we couldn't send any F-18s over to Red Flag. We had to send the F-111s because we, we weren't able to get any uh, commercial tankers to come and do it, so to drag those aircraft across. So the F-111s island hopped their way across. Yeah, it's saying here in this article, which we found in Australian Aviation Online, did we ever mention that that's, at, that, uh, that's actually our favourite aviation magazine, Grant? I'm sure we've mentioned that occasionally. We should. We should mention it every episode. Australian Aviation, our favourite aviation magazine. It says here that Airbus Military uh, Division has uh, requested the aircraft go back to help uh, assist with completion of certification work on the type and to uh, participate in passing of the fuel from the uh, KC-30's new fly-by-wire boom. That's right. Eventually they will pass gas. <laughs> oh, dear. Do I really need to pop the rim shot in there again, Grant? No, I don't. Uh, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these aircraft have been sitting at Brisbane being uh, modified uh, by Qantas Defence Services. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm kind of surprised they're heading back. I would have thought they would have already been pretty well uh, certified before they left France. Made yeah, no. Across here. no, they've hit some they've hit some snags in the certification process over in Europe, and so the other aircraft's going back to help share the load. Maybe they can become a uh, demonstration unit for the uh, United States Air Force. I think they're having a little contest at the moment, aren't they? Just a tad. Just, Just a tad. tad. Mm. Okay, and as we wind up this week uh, on a uh, rather brief episode of Playing Crazy Down Under, there really hasn't been a huge news week, I guess, but uh, we'll just round it here with an, uh, another article about Qantas. Uh, they're calling for an air traffic overhaul, as reported in ABC News and a couple of other sources this week. Chief Executive of Qantas, Ellen Joyce, last night used Sir Reg Ansett's memorial lecture to call for Australian air traffic systems to be modernised. He says more efficient use of airspace would cut emissions and save airlines millions of dollars each year on fuel. Mm, this is this is working on the concept of uh, continuous descents and things like that without having to do the stages, uh, flying uh, routes that are more direct rather than having to go through airways. And there's, there is some talk within a few in air traffic control here and in the States that it sounds good, and it works when you do a trial, but what happens when everyone's trying to do it? And it gets really, really complex. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how things like you're talking about the sort of progressive descents like that. I, I just, I, or constant descents in in busy airspace. There's just no way that could work. I, don't, I can't see how that would work. Well, the computers would be kept pretty damn busy, that's for sure. Separation minima sometimes can be a bit of a debating point. I mean, the, the classic thing with the with the the enhanced systems do allow you to fly the aircraft closer together. So you don't have to leave as much space between them. You can pack more into routes or not even use routes with that more direct flying. But uh, as has been proven again and again, it doesn't matter how many you can pack into the air. If you've got limited tarmac to land them on, there's your bottleneck. Yeah, I think if they wanted to trial something like that, I mean, Australia is a vast country. Once they got out, you know, aircraft that are perhaps flying across the, the red centre or something like that, where there's not so much air traffic around, maybe they could have a little bit of latitude there, but they'd have to be coming into nodes or hubs where they would have to then come back into a, um, a far more tightly controlled system. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how all that pans out. No, I think I'd be happy uh, flying on uh, the, the established J routes for now. I think that's a, a far, far safer way to do things. It's one, like we said earlier on, it's one thing to save, be calling to save money, but uh, you know, how, far, how much safety do we sacrifice to uh, save save a few dollars? Yeah, well, that's that's what we'll find out over time, and and where the computer systems can come in and help augment the um, the air traffic controllers and and work with everyone in the aircraft and on the ground to to streamline everything along. We'll, we'll have to see how that goes. But uh, Baz, you found another way that um, some money can be saved in the air. Yeah, uh, apparently, and this hasn't been reported uh, very widely, but uh, defence flight paths close to civilian users since World War II will be opened up in the coming months, potentially leading to large savings for the airlines. So this is an uh, article in the Sydney Morning Herald, smh.com.au, um, saying that Air Marshal Binskin talked uh, of seven previously restricted zones being dismantled and the number subject to part-time restrictions being reduced from 81 to 15. Um, and again, Ellen Joyce uh, praises that because uh, he thinks it'll save the money by flying more direct. Yeah, it takes out a few dog legs and a few diversions and so on, I guess. Yeah. But uh, to put things into perspective, when he talks about uh, you know saving millions and he's talking about 10, 20 millions, oh, huge saving. Uh, how many tickets do they sell a year? I don't think we're going to see any advantage of that, really. Yeah. 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 Uh, would it, would it, for instance, perish the thought? Would it actually bring air ticket prices down at Qantas? I doubt it. Uh, well, maybe up. maybe by fifty cents per ticket. Yeah. Well. Hi. <laughs> 
you came to the same figure I did, Baz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there has been a lot of talk lately about, uh, you know, not only integrating air routes as they're talking now, but also, you know, as we reported uh, when we were talking with uh, Rob, who, uh, Rob Mark, in a recent episode there, they're talking about uh, perhaps integrating the civil and military air traffic control systems. Um, so that, that'd be interesting too, to see what would come of that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it is the question of why are we maintaining these if we're not really using them? Why do we have the difference between civil and military air traffic control? You can understand it in some ways, uh, but maybe getting the military guys to uh, work a bit longer and uh, you know, a few different shifts and also include the civilians in there and voila, you can take away the civilian controllers and put them somewhere else. Food for thought. And speaking of food, who's up for some food? Perhaps some peas? Oh, you mean peas like these? Ah, stop it, my ears are bleeding. Oh, mate, it was a good track, and then the original, but, oh, that's just me being old school, I guess. But, uh, yeah, that's right, the Black Eyed Peas, they're here in Australia at the moment, and uh, they organised a private flight from Melbourne Airport to Perth, and uh, they created the Mile High Karaoke Plane. Uh, They're going to be flying at 41,000 feet and playing music. Now, it's uh, nearly 140 VIP guests, including 30 winners from a national competition run by News Limited, will join the Black Eyed Peas on board and share this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity as well as being given the chance to showcase their vocal ability alongside the talented quartet in a mile-high karaoke session. That's pretty scary for anyone on board who, you know, like the crew, (laughs) you're stuck. You're trapped. You can't get off. Oh, no. It's just about as scary as you saying uh, their vocal ability and, <laughs> and musical talent in the same sentence. I, I Well, looking at the photo of them, I'm wondering, are they really there for the vocals? But anyhow. Well, I, I'm really disappointed I didn't win that contest. Yeah, well, could you just imagine if uh, accidentally you got bumped onto that flight because of some ticketing mix-up? No. Oh dear. Brett Godfrey, the Virgin Blue Chief Executive, uh, says here that as well as being the official airline for the Australian League of the END World Tour, getting the chance to work on such a unique project with the Black Eyed Peas was an opportunity we just couldn't pass up. Did you realise that for this flight, Virgin Blue are modifying a 737-800 aircraft for it? I mean, I guess the modifications are putting in new set, excuse me, new um, new cabin speakers, but... <laughs> Wow, specially modified just for it. No, what they're doing is they're lowering it with uh, pump-up shocks so they can bounce it along the way. <laughs> As it co- comes in and out of the gate. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, baby. Well, they reckon following three months of intense planning by a team of more than 50 people, including engineers, technicians, and staging professionals, the aircraft has been transformed into a unique venue which promises a very intimate experience for those lucky enough to be on board. It also features a specially designed signage decal fitted to its fuselage to mark the occasion. The chill-out room is in the rear, and the low-light room is in the middle. I thought it might have been another sticker saying, this vehicle is not roadworthy. (laughs) (laughs) We break for hallucinations, dude. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But uh, if you want to fly with some real uh, rock celebrity, you know that uh, Bruce Dickinson, the former lead singer of Iron Maiden, he actually flies uh, for a a charter airline in the UK called Monarch. And uh, I have flown on that airline once, my one of the few charter experiences, never to be repeated. Um, I'm not (laughs) sure if he flew on the plane, but uh, yeah, he might get get something more interesting out of that than uh, the Black Eyed Peas. Yeah, well, uh, when Iron Maiden did their world tour, they uh, painted up a Monarch 757 with the Iron Maiden um, gentleman on the tail, the uh, the famous undead kind of looking guy. I think his name's Eddie, uh, was on the tail, and uh, Bruce was one of the pilots flying it around. So uh, that led to one of the jokes, which is, uh, you know, why won't Bruce fly Airbus? Because he's very metal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking at the picture here. It was uh, The plane was called Ed Force One. Yeah, that's it for Eddie. That's there it. you go. Yeah, no, that was awesome. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was right chuffed to find out that he, he was not just flying around in it, he was flying it. Oh, yeah, on a day-to-day basis, he gets up uh, early in the morning and flies people to uh, their all their destinations. Yeah, see, so you can mi- mix music and flying. 
And that's about everything we have for you in this uh, rather shortened version of Plane Crazy Down Under this week. It, uh, like I said, has been a uh, rather slow news week for aviations. Our uh, theme music every week is called uh, You Name It Five by Brian Simpson. And all our sound effects and music, as always, come from soundsnap.com. A big thanks to those of you who've uh, already used our chip jar recently. We really appreciate that, guys. Uh, that's really helping us to cover our hosting fees and our equipment costs and uh, much, much more. So thanks very much to that, guys, and uh, keep them coming. That's fantastic. Yeah, we're really happy with that. Uh, we were right chuffed to receive a, a couple of donations early on. Uh, we honestly didn't think we'd get much at all, and they, they have started rolling in, and we really, really appreciate it. Uh, every little bit counts. Uh, even a couple of bucks, it all goes some way towards helping us uh, stay energized and focused and keep producing these uh, episodes for you. Show notes for everything we've covered this week can be found, as always, on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com. You can visit our fan page on Facebook if you like, and you can also find us on Twitter as PCDU. You can find Steve online as Steve Vischer, or one word, on Twitter and Facebook, and via his blog, www.ozflyer.com. And you can find Grant online as Falcon124 on Twitter, and via his blog as blog.flymefriendly.com. And Baz, where can the people find you? Also on Twitter and Facebook. Just type in my name, you'll find me. There's not that many people out there uh, with the same name. And also on our uh, new site called uh, aeroscene.com.au. Go to the flying group. And that's our flying group that we're uh, just started here in South Australia. And if you're a pilot and uh, you want to come uh, with us on any of our trips or get-togethers, uh, yeah, get in touch. Fantastic, folks. If you come across an article that you'd like covered on the podcast, uh, make a good copy of the link, scan the article, even record your own voice and send it into us. The email address there is under at gmail.com but in the meantime when next time you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts guys what do we have to remember it's what's down under that counts folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Uh, it was after the station break. I'm just going to bring it up. Poor choice of words, really. No, mile high, bring it up anyway. Yeah, I know. I know. I, know. I, was, I was trying to... Anyhow, too late. Too late, too late. Hang on, let me make a mark before you start. All right, go for it. Well, and... Yeah. Bleh. Flew that Let me one. make another mark. Are we going to slide into this one? You've lost me. Yeah, I know. I shut you down. Sorry. I'm just a simple train driver, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Quant, uh, Danish... Bleh. Qantas butter? No. Did we milk that one for everything, boys? Oh, mate, we slid on through that one. It was rich, thick, and crummy. <laughs> God. Let me make that a stop point. Jeez, there's still a fair bit to go, isn't there? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, don't worry. It's only 11.30 in Adelaide. I feel like we're so big and important now. I feel like we're just taking a step towards growing up. We're, we're, we're like a real radio show now. <laughs> wow. And stop. How are we doing for time? Well, it's only midnight in Adelaide. Yeah. Okay, let's go.